0: Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city And set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. God, we
1: beg of you for your help. We thank you for your mercy, and we ask for it all the more. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be always acceptable in your side, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Good evening. It's great to see you. It is the first Sunday of Lent. Are you excited about Lent? Excited, yeah. Excited is a relative word, isn't it? It's an interesting season. Some of us have a complicated relationship with Lent. We don't, we're not quite sure what to do with it. We still think of it as something very foreign, something very, quote, Catholic. And it is Catholic in the sense that God's people for a long, long time have observed days of fasting and prayer, f- focusing on God's Word, meditating on Holy Scriptures in order to prepare for the celebration of Easter. So it's a really good and beautiful Thing to do, and tonight um, I'm going to try my best at a homily. Which, uh, for those of you who aren't in the, in the know with the lingo, that's really just a short sermon. So, so what I'm trying to say is I'm going to try to make this really concise and brief, but focus on three things that we hear tonight from the lessons, and we're going to look at the lessons three different ways. Are you ready for the three ways? You may write them down if you wish. Cosmically, like the cosmos, we're going to look at them cosmically. We're going to look at them theologically. And finally, tactically. Hmm, tactical. Sounds interesting. First, cosmically. Genesis 2 and 3 lay the groundwork for what's happening, really, in all of creation. God has made the heavens and the earth. It's all there, and he takes dust from the ground and forms man. And man is there, and he's not alive yet, is he? What has to happen for him to be alive, for him to be a, quote, living soul, God breathes the breath of life into him. And so then he becomes a human being, a man, a living soul. And the stage is set. God takes man, he puts him in the garden to work it and to keep it. This work was like his worship unto God. It was his way of being with God in relationship We find out there's a wife comes later. We skip some of those verses just for the sake of time. But the wife comes later out of the side of Adam, out of his rib. And they're joined together. And it says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So we have this cosmic setting in creation, but we have specifically humans, anthropos, people right here. And God gives the man and his wife what? Besides the beautiful garden and all the trees and everything to eat of them, he gives them a fast. Have you ever thought of it that way? Adam, Eve, I walk with you in the garden in the cool of the day. You have all of these trees. You live in paradise. You live in delight. And you may eat of anything that you see except this one tree in the middle. And God's proclamation to them was an invitation to exercise discipline over their desires. You may eat of anything. So God gave them freedom to do something, not freedom from something else. He says you may do anything except this one Thing. Now, we know, we know the serpent. We, I know some of you probably like snakes, but in my, one of my, uh, my daughter's sixth grade class, they have a snake, and his name is Mr. Morton. <laughs> He's very friendly. He's only bitten three people in five years. But the serpent was the craftiest. Now, remember, we're getting this cosmic perspective, Right? So this is setting the stage for all of creation, for all of history. Did you notice what, just a real quick aside, did you notice what the beginning of Genesis 2, 5, was it 5, says? These are the generations, or other translations would say, this this is the Genesis, the origins of the heavens and the earth. So the serpent was more crafty, and the serpent approaches Eve, the wife, and says this. Did God really say? Now pay attention to that, that tactic, because it's going to come back. Did God really say, you may not eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden? Eve explains. Eve remembers God's words, and she quotes God's word back to the serpent. And yet, that tree was what? It was beautiful, beautiful. It was pleasing to the eye. We hear hear faint echoes of what St. John would write. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. And in this cosmic moment, Eve takes of the fruit of the tree that they were not to take of. She and Adam break the fast that they were invited into. They do not exercise mastery over their desires. Rather, their desires take control and they follow suit. So, cosmically, we have the beginning, paradise, beauty, fruitfulness, there's no shame, sin, and then what happens? Cosmically, they realize they were naked And they couldn't stay like that. And seeing themselves, what did they do? They covered themselves up. They put layer upon layer upon layer upon layer over their true selves. Cosmically. Theologically. St. Paul is describing for us why the encounter that Jesus has with Satan in the wilderness is so cosmically important. And he does it in a theological way. Did you notice what he did? He takes Adam and he says, Adam is a type of who? Jesus. So there's this man who in a sense had no beginning he was the firstborn, and Jesus is one who will be called the firstborn from the dead. Jesus, who we know as God, begotten of the Father, God of God, light of light, begotten, not made, of one essence, of one being with the Father. We know that, that Jesus has no beginning, but Jesus comes on the scene. So we have Adam and we have Jesus. And Paul tells us why it is so important that Jesus prevail in the wilderness. And it's because of this. Adam sinned. Now notice Paul doesn't pin it on Eve. He, he makes Adam take responsibility for it. Adam sinned, and from sin came Death. You will surely die. God God told them. God promised them. You will surely die. And from death came condemnation. Judgment. And that sin, death, condemnation pattern then was unleashed into all of creation. Not just into human beings, but what do we see all around us in creation? Turmoil. Chaos. Fear. Fear anxiety. I mean, it's, it's in the air. But even the created order, Paul says, is subjected to futility. We think maybe of that great Christmas carol, Joy to the World. He comes to make his blessings flow. Jesus comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. So there will be no more thorns and thistles, but there will only be fruitfulness because of the new Adam, the new man. Paul says, theologically, because of this cosmic event way back here, theologically, this one sinned, but this one behaved in righteousness. And that righteousness was a gift. And that gift leads to justification and life. So whereas the, the result of judgment with Adam is condemnation and death, the result of judgment with this new Adam, with his gift to all of creation, that result is justification, being made right with God, being able to live in union and communion with God. You see, the things that were taken away from Adam and Eve because they broke that fast are given back to us in our Lord Jesus Christ, the new Adam, theologically. We have the cosmos, we have this theological vision, and now we have, we're down to brass tacks. We're down to tactics. Look in your bulletin, if you will, at Matthew chapter four. It's on page seven and eight. What a powerful sentence we read as Matthew writes then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil that should give us pause when we read that shouldn't it what has just happened with Jesus why is there a then there Jesus was just baptized by his cousin John in the Jordan river so he's already out in the wilderness he's already out in the boonies past Jericho And he's out there and he's baptized and the heavens are rent asunder and the Spirit comes down like a dove and a voice from heaven. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. So the Father pronounces the identity of Jesus. And then, now that we got that settled, Jesus, the Spirit leads him into the wilderness. You could say even the the sense of the word is that the Spirit throws Jesus into the wilderness. Think about the wilderness for a second. What is the wilderness in Scripture? We know after Moses killed an Egyptian that was oppressing a Hebrew, he fled to the wilderness. We know that the people of Israel for 40 years wandered about, where? By Valley View Mall? No. (laughs) It's kind of like the wilderness. In the wilderness. And repeatedly they could not obey God. And so Jesus is thrown out into the wilderness. And he's not scared out there. He's not shooed out there by an army of demons. But he's led by who? The Spirit of God. Oh man, that's a brain bender. Sometimes the Lord will lead us into dry places. And we can't explain it. And we don't know exactly why. But here Jesus, we do know why Jesus is led into the wilderness. Paul's explained it to us. Because the one man has to be free of sin. The one new Adam has to undo what the first Adam did. So the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness for the express purpose of being tempted by the devil. And for 40 days and 40 nights, what did Jesus do? He fasted. The Spirit, it doesn't say, led Jesus into the wilderness to fast, and then he was tempted. He was sent into the wilderness to be tempted. And so with this first Adam, there was a fast that he broke and that resulted in sin and unrighteousness and condemnation. In judgment. But with the new Adam, there's a fast that he keeps in order to do what? Presumably to defeat Satan, in order to presumably conquer temptation. You see, when we fast, when we exercise authority over ourselves, when we tell our body no, we remember what and who is in control. Adam rejected the divine word that said, you may not eat of that tree and took of the fruit. But Jesus, we will see, uses the divine word to keep the fast and defeat Satan. Why do I keep emphasizing fasting? Well, look what Satan does. Notice his tactics in his first temptation. Verse three. Now remember, this is the end of a long, a full and perfect season of fasting, 40 days and 40 nights. And what does Satan do? If you are the son of God. Do you remember what he said in Genesis? Did God really say, if you are the son of God? We know what Jesus must have experienced. Now, we know Jesus is fully God, divine will. Can't do anything else besides the Father. But he's also fully human. And he has a human will. This is a conundrum. Jesus has to rely on the word that the Father spoke over him. Jesus has to rely on the reality that he knows who he is. If you are the Son of God, command these... Man, that's the the first thing that you want to do when you break a long fast. not like I've ever done that. But just bread. All the bread. That kind of bread and that kind of bread, even a marble rye. Give me all the bread. If you're the son of God, command these stones to become bread. Do you know what Satan knew? That Jesus could totally do it. He could do it like that. So Satan, questioning his identity, knowing his ability, tempts him. And what does Jesus do? Instead of rejecting the divine word like Adam, Jesus uses the divine word and quotes a scripture from when Israel was wandering in the desert. Ooh, touche. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Why do we read and meditate God's holy word in the season of Lent? Because we do not live by bread alone. Why do we fast in this holy season of Lent as we are able? Because we do not live by bread alone. And we have to remind our bodies that simply because we desire something does not mean we can do it or partake of it or eat it. We do not live by bread alone, but by everything that precedes From the mouth of God. Every holy word. Again, Satan picking up on Jesus' tactic. Okay, he's going to quote scripture. Satan goes right to Psalm 91. Well then. And notice what Satan does. He takes them where? To the pinnacle of the temple. In the holy city. Now, at this point, you can think two things. This is like a cartoon. And it's not really real. Or two, the devil has some power. I'm going to opt for option number two. Did you know that we are in a spiritual battle all the time? That St. Paul says, we don't battle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities and the principalities who have power in this present darkness, Satan and his fallen angels, i.e. demons, are real. They have power. They know you. They know me. We fast in order to be ready to face the temptation, just like Jesus. Satan says, again, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, and then he Quotes the scripture, he will give his angels charge concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus says again it is written, again from Deuteronomy, again rebuking him that he is not to test or to tempt God. Lastly, Satan takes him to a very high place and shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And notice what this is. This is a bit of a shortcut, isn't it? Because we know that Jesus will be the one for whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord on earth and above the earth and under the earth. So in a way, I mean, this is kind of like what's going to happen. I could have all the kingdoms of the world if I just worship this guy, former snake, Notice how Jesus responds, and notice what Satan is asking him to do, and think about your life right now. Worship. What is it that you worship? What is it that I worship? What is it that we bow down before and give all of our obedience to? That we give all of our energy? What is it that Harold Best says? What is it that's the overflow of everything that we are in response to the grace of God in Christ? Is it God himself? Is it the Holy Trinity? Is it the divine one who gives us everything we need for life and godliness? Everything for us richly to enjoy? The one in whom there is no shifting shadow who gives us wisdom and every good and perfect gift. Is that the one that we are bowed down before? Or are we willing to accept a counterfeit, a shortcut? I'll give you all the nations of the world. We think about Psalm 2, where the psalmist prophesies how all the nations are going to be given to the Son. The temptation is based on his identity, and it's an invitation to take a shortcut into false worship. And Jesus says something so powerful You shall worship the Lord your God only and serve him only. And how does he finish it? Get out of here, Satan. Be gone. With authority, Jesus confronts him and rebukes him. He refuses the temptation with the divine word of God, and he rebukes the tempter. Woo! This is real. This is not a nice allegorical thing. This is reality. And this is the battle line fought cosmically, It is fought theologically, and it is fought with tactics. And on this first Sunday of Lent, my question for me and for you is this. What identity-questioning shortcuts is Satan and his demons offering to me and to you? What identity-questioning shortcuts are we presented with day after day, minute after minute? How will we respond? Jesus has already conquered temptation. We don't have to give in to it. There is no power over us in temptation. St. Paul says there's no temptation that you're approached with, that is not common to everyone else. And God gives you a way out. And Jesus went before us to conquer it completely. We live no longer in death and condemnation, but united to Christ, we live in justification, in freedom, in life. And nevertheless, you will be approached by the enemy. You'll be approached by the world constantly with identity-questioning shortcuts to get you to break your fast, to break your obedience to God and worship another. Let us pray. God in heaven, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that greater is he who is in us, our Lord Jesus Christ, than he who is in the world, Satan. We pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us, anoint us with the oil of gladness and the oil of your presence as you have mercy on us tonight. And we thank you for this holy season of Lent where all of the victories have been won already for us, but yet we still battle the enemy. Lord Jesus, come and help us. We pray in your name.